Hello and welcome to Microphilosophy, a podcast featuring diverse discussions with philosophers worth listening to. I'm Julian Bagini. After our three-part season four opener on trans and women's rights, it's time for another mini-series, this time of discussions recorded live in Bristol. Ryan Van Norden and Jin Y. Park are two of the world's leading philosophers working at the intersection of East and West. Park's book, Buddhism and Postmodernity, combines Zen and Hawaiian Buddhism with continental philosophy, while Van Norden's book, Taking Back Philosophy, a Multicultural Manifesto, has challenged Western philosophers to open their minds and doors to other traditions. Last year, I spoke to Jin and Brian for one of a series of philosophy salons at St. George's, Bristol. As so often happened in these salons, we covered a lot of ground, and the more the conversation went on, the more it warmed up. To begin with, Jin, I wonder if you could say, we're talking about Asian philosophy in this sort of big uh, global area. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you just sort of like pinpoint for us, what are the sort of main sort of schools and areas that come under that umbrella? Asian philosophy it is really big title. It's like a Western philosophy. What is it, right? So, uh, but there are some kind of big names and big schools that we usually cover at the conference or when we teach Asian philosophy at, in our kind of uh, universities. So obviously there are big uh, schools included. Confucius. Many people heard about Confucius. So Confucian tradition, starting from Confucius, which is the fifth century before Common Era, which continues even today, and which has enormous influence on East Asian countries, China, Korea, and Japan, even nowadays. So that tradition is one big tradition. Another big tradition is the Buddhist tradition. I'm sure that many of you heard of Buddhism or some practice Buddhism. So Buddhism started in India, 5th century before Common Era, by the Buddha. But then the Buddhism also traveled to East Asia. So here is a South Asian, South, Southeast Asian Buddhism, and then East Asian Buddhism, which means China, Korea, and Japan. So that also has 2,500 years history. So starting from Buddha's time, 5th century before Common Era and all the way today, we have a lot of literature in which we can talk about the Buddhist philosophy. And another big kind of group is called Taoism. I'm sure that some of you heard about this expression, Tao Te Ching, uh, one of the most translated, perhaps, Chinese texts. There are over 100 English translations of this very short kind of book. And it, the Lao Tzu, assumed the author of the book, he lived around third or fourth century before Common Era, but then that tradition also continued even today in a various philosophical and religious form. That's a big tra- traditional tra- the Asian philosophy, but then if you come to modern period, you see new types of philosophy. Philosophy, Western philosophy came to Asia around 19th century mid to late 19th century, and the Asian intellectuals and thinkers, they began to read Western philosophy, and there you see a new types of philosophy emerged there. So, for example, in Japan, there is a Gyoto school thinkers, the philosophers who taught at the University Kyoto University in Japan, they have a kind of new modern East Asian philosophy. So I think that these are the kind of big uh, Asian philosophy group and within that, obviously, we have Indian tradition, Chinese tradition, Japanese tradition, and Korean tradition. And you can go by kind of regional uh, uh, practices as well. Yes, that's really helpful. Now, let's just address a couple of ideas people might have on the basis of that. 
The first is that, you know, those three main traditions you talked about, they all of them have their origins, you know, hundreds of years before Christ. They're very, very old. So therefore, some people have, have an, an impression that actually Asian philosophy, for the most part, is, is, is old traditional stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's, and, it's a, and, and so in that sense, it hasn't really sort of progressed. Because Western philosophy, yes, Plato, Aristotle, but we've got our Descartes, we've got our whatever. It's got this ancient past, but does, does that mean it's basically old philosophy? That's a very good question, and that's one of the things I've been kind of working on by exploring modernist Asian philosophy. The question itself is a very political question. By political, I mean that. So when we talk about, or when we teach Asian philosophy in, in academia, actually we teach Confucius, Buddha, the Buddha, and the, the Lao Tzu, 5th century, 3rd century before common era, and you stop sometime 2nd century or 5th century, if you are lucky, you can move to 18th century, and you stop. But when we teach Western philosophy, we start from Plato, Aristotle, even pre-Socratic philosophy, and if you move to medieval philosophy, and pre-modern, modern, 19th century, and 20th century, and you teach individual thinker, Derrida, Heidegger. Mm. Why is it the case that Asian philosophy always started with Confucius and stopped 2nd, 3rd, 5th century? That is political because the concept of the title philosophy came from the West. The expression philosophy, expression religion, did not exist in East Asia and Asia. These expressions appeared when Western philosophy, Western religious document were translated into Asian language. What it means, name, there's a lot in the name, right? What's in the name, Julia says, right, Julia? Says. So name has a lot of things. Those who own the name has default value. So this is one of the big issues. When Asian Western thinkers, Western academics say that Asia does not have a philosophy, their standard is Western standard. In Asia, the religion and philosophy one are two separate schools. We call Confucian schools, Confucian teaching traditionally instead of Confucian philosophy. So because of these differences, in modern period, when in Asia people say philosophy, they, they think that philosophy means Western philosophy. And in order to study Asian philosophy, you have to put this expression, Asian philosophy, as if Western philosophy is a default format of philosophy. And if you Google, you can even find a, the article, something like, can Asians think? <laughs> well, obviously we do. The same kind of questions, can women think? Yes, I think I do. Right? So this is a kind of idea that who gets the power of the title, philosophy, and there you kind of limit the power to those who are not there from the beginning as a member of the community. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's probably also worth, worth stressing that uh, there's sometimes a misconception that, well, these people like uh, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, and, and Confucius had these philosophical ideas, and then people just repeated what they said for a couple millennia. But the reality, as we know, is that actually these are extremely active, diverse traditions, just like in the West. So people developed Confucius's ideas in new ways, and they argued about what the significance of them was. Some Confucians said that human nature was good, and that eventually became the orthodox position, but other Confucians said that human nature uh, has good and bad in it. Uh, some people said that Confucius human nature is bad. And then after Buddhism came to China, it developed its own 
particular Chinese incarnation of Buddhism, which had its distinctive forms like Zen Buddhism, uh, is a, a distinctively East Asian form of Buddhism. And then Confucianism had to react to that. So Confucianism became Neo-Confucianism. And then at the beginning of the modern era, as China interacted with the West, there were debates about how to transform Confucianism to make it a modern movement or whether Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism had to be transcended completely. So you actually have a very vibrant tradition over time. It's just that people don't know how vibrant and diverse the various strands of Chinese philosophy have been. But can I actually pick up on a word you use there? You use the word tradition a few times, and I Mm -hmm. think that's an interesting one because... I think one of the sort of the self-conceptions of Western philosophy is that in some sense it sees itself as a tradition, but on the other hand, its self-image is, is about the idea of constant progress. And so, you know, you mark yourself out by doing something different from being a break from the past, from being original and being different. Now, it seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that in, 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 in Asia, the idea of being a part of tradition is something people don't feel apologetic about. And so, for example, Confucius himself, you know, is reported as saying that he didn't, wasn't claiming to say anything new. He claimed to be preserving the wisdom of the ancient sage kings, which he thought was in danger of being sort of uh, destroyed. Is that a, a good or bad thing, though? Does seeing yourself as belonging to this tradition, does it make you more conservative? Does it make you less open to change? I think that's a that's a great question, and the the paradigm for modern philosophy in the West is set by Descartes, and Descartes gives you this image that he's just sitting by himself, thinking out his own ideas and being completely original and developing them. But historians know that if you actually study Descartes, so many of his ideas are taken from earlier thinkers. Even the notion that he's most famous for, "I think, therefore I am," is really cribbed from Saint Augustine who's you know, writing a, a, around 400 in the Common Era. But the, the self-image of Western philosophy is that it's always new and you're just developing your own ideas. But recently, thinkers in the West have come to realize that it's impossible to be completely original. You can't think without thinking from somewhere. And that doesn't mean you can't be original It just means you have to acknowledge the fact that it's impossible to think without just using a language is using ideas that have come from your culture and from your tradition. And that doesn't rule out uh, originality. So, for example, you get these debates in the Confucian tradition between thinkers like Zhu Xi and Wang Yangming, and both of them say, I'm just explaining what the ancients thought, but they're really... Uh, in that vocabulary, they're coming up with very original interpretations and they're passionately arguing with each other about what the true meaning of that tradition is. So recognizing that you're part of an intellectual tradition is a matter of being intellectually honest. It doesn't rule out having new ideas. Right, and uh, that actually I think shows the kind of different concept of individual and self in the big East and the West. So the idea of thinking that my work within the context of tradition means that whatever new idea I have, that was possible if I really have a new idea, that was possible because I learned all these things from my predecessors. Right. So the concept of self in the East is more relational self. Instead of saying that I got this new idea, I created. And by doing that, setting yourself aside from the tradition itself, Asian self is always relational. My idea came from my predecessors, uh, the, the thinkers 
before me. So by saying calling myself as a part of tradition, I acknowledge the kind of influence of those thinkers I learned and the tradition I learned, and kind of I put kind of express my humility. So as Brian just said, that does not mean that I do not challenge my predecessors. But instead of saying that I challenge my predecessors, Asian thinkers have a tendency to saying that well I have this humble idea which my predecessors expressed a lot, and because of the tradition, we call more in Asia you call more tradition. Tradition means that there is a whole lot of things before you.、Mm-hmm. Instead of saying that there are history, and I'm here to challenge the entire history, which is setting yourself aside from your, the history and make it as a totally independent being. So I think the, the different concept of self and individual is it, kind of a, we can see that in this different way of doing philosophy in the East and the West. I mean, it does seem to me that it's, it's sort of more realistic. Is actually is there something that's slightly You know, megalomaniac about the, the Western <laughs> conception of the self is we're always trying to imagine we can, like, you know, uproot ourselves from our traditions. And I mean, it is reflected in even the names of the traditions, isn't it? Because Confucianism is the name we talk for it, but the the Chinese name is Ruism. Ruism, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ruism. I mean, she doesn't refer to the name of the founder at all. It's、no. like a, a, a wisdom kind of. Yeah, a, the the erudites, the, the, the erudites, learned, exactly.、Yeah. Whatever it might be. But this thing, what you're talking about, the relationality of the of the self in in Asian thought. So, I, th- I think that's a really interesting point. I'd like to just explore a little bit more about that because I think the stereotype we have is that because. The West is more individualistic.、Mm-hmm. I think we think that the East is more collectivist. So it's about the suppression of individual identity. Now, there's a, there's a sense in which what you've said kind of fits that stereotype because it's about not the suppression of individual identity,、mm-hmm. but the the recognition that the individual is only what it is because of how it relates to others.、Mm-hmm. What do you say to people if they say, "Yeah, so it's but that basically isn't that just collectivism? It's about subsuming your identity. It's about." Everyone kind of being the same—that's、mm-hmm. a misconception. I yeah, I, I, I think I think it is. And the, I mean, just one example is the sayings of Confucius in English are called the Analects. And one of the things that always strikes me when I read it is we have this vivid portrait of Confucius himself, and we have a vivid portrait of him as an individual.、Mm-hmm. And on top of that, we have portraits of his individual disciples. Each of whom stands out for his individual character.、Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite passages in the the sayings of Confucius, a、uh, disciple comes to Confucius and says,、um, "You know, I've I have such and such a problem.、Uh, you know, what should I I do about it?" And the Confucius says, "Well, what you should do is you should ask your、uh, father and your elder brothers what they think about it. Don't you know? Use your own judgment." Second disciple comes in, asks the very same question in the very same words, and Confucius says, "You should immediately do something about that. Don't bother to consult with anybody."、Mm-hmm. A third disciple has seen both exchanges, and he has the question we have: is he says, "Could you tell me why you gave one answer to the first disciple and the opposite answer to the second disciple?" And Confucius says. Well, the first disciple is overly headstrong, so I wanted to hold him back. The second disciple is always making excuses for not doing things, so I wanted to urge him forward.、Yeah. And it shows both the context sensitivity、mm-hmm. of Confucian responses, but also the fact that people have individual characters, and we have、right. to take、mm-hmm. those into account, both in thinking about them and in giving advice to them about、mm-hmm. how they should live.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's a very、uh, kind of a good example, and then. 
First of all, I think we have to think about when you think about the philosophical ideas and tradition. I believe any philosophical ideas tradition have a potentiality to be interpreted in an opposite directions. I've been seeing many of these cases, the idea which can support the individualism and the liberating people can also be interpreted as for collectivist and totalitarian ideas. So the relational identity, if it goes moves one extreme, then it becomes a collectivist kind of idea, which suppresses the individual's kind of identity, women's identity, and things like that. On the other hand, if you really think about we, me as an individual and how we exist here at this moment, then I, I need all these things which is not me in order for me to survive. I have to breathe the oxygen, I have to drink water, and all these things make me realize that my existence itself is not totally because of me, right? But because of all the other things which I do not count as myself. And that idea is really basis of a relational identity. And that's what Buddhism says, no self, right? I do have a self. I'm different from you, 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 you. But at the same time, my existence is not because I have some essence of chinpangness, but because I'm indebted to all these different things. And to be aware of this thing is really, I think, difficult. And to practice this in real life, that is very social, political, ethical issue, is even more difficult. And I think when we talk about the relational identity, as much as a kind of warning against collectivism, we also have to think about, can we really practice this? And in the philosophical ideas, if we realize that it's difficult to practice, then we tend to think that that doesn't make sense. But that we shouldn't kind of suppress some ideas because we realize that that that's not kind of practically possible for me to practice, but we kind of move step by step to kind of practice it one step at a time. And and just to amplify that point, so the, uh, again, to mention, you know, Descartes again, the, this Western ideal of the radical individualist, it went with an image of, okay, everyone's an individual, here's what an individual is supposed to be like. And then sometimes that can be used as a way of suppressing people who aren't like the ideal individual. So if you don't like the way things are and, you know, you're in another culture, well, you're not fully rational, you know, like a real individual is in our culture. Or if you're a woman and, you know, you don't like the way things are in the culture, well, that's because as a woman you're not fully rational the way independent individuals are according to our ideal. And so that's a way in which you can also have this ideal of the individual can be exploited as a way of, you know, suppressing individuality, ironically, as well. Yeah. I think when sometimes I think about these different traditions, it's natural to sort of get it into where it's like a, you know, who's, who's best? There's, there's this competition between them. Mm-hmm. And that can work both ways. So people can be both very dismissive of Asian philosophy. Mm-hmm. They can also romanticize it. Mm-hmm. Oh, like Asians, yeah. in Asia, they don't right, have this horrible right, individualism right. we have here. They probably understand, etc. Right, right, right. And so what you're saying is that there are, there are always, uh, you know, different traditions have different strengths, mm-hmm. but those strengths are also different weaknesses. So in an individualistic society, where you have this danger of atomization, of egotism, etc., etc., that's right, our danger. Yeah. The danger in, in the relational society is the slide towards collectivism. And they're, right. they're, they're both problems right. which reflect the strengths. There's an analogy I use I, I, to, to make sense of this, which I hope, I hope works for people, which is I think mm-hmm. about jazz, because jazz bands are very interesting. Jazz musicians uh, have very strong characters. We tend to know who they are. If you're, if you're into jazz, you'll know your favorite players, you know, the best bass players, etc. But there's very, very little solo jazz. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. In order for these players to really express their individuality, mm-hmm. they have to play with other players. And they're also playing in tradition. So even when people are being innovative, they're yeah, being innovative yeah. within a tradition. So I think the sort, of, the sort of jazz music gives a good model of how actually, you know, being belonging to a tradition and being part of a group mm-hmm. is not actually the enemy of individualism. It can mm-hmm. be the thing mm-hmm. which really brings it out. Mm-hmm. But there's another word I wanted to pick up on, which you use there, Jin, which is this idea of, of practice. Mm-hmm. Which again, I, I, my impression is, as an, as an amateur in this, that this, this is a, a, certainly a difference of emphasis between um, Western and, and Asian philosophy. I don't know what you make of this distinction which Roger Ames and his colleague um, came up between way-seeking and truth-seeking traditions. It's not, it's not an either-or. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's about mm-hmm. emphasis. The idea is mm-hmm. that in the West, the emphasis is on establishing the truth mm-hmm. propositions. Whereas mm-hmm. they say that in, in, in the East, the emphasis is on finding the way, finding the way to live. Uh, what do you make of that distinction? Well, I'm always a little suspicious of, of distinctions that are too absolute. Mm. I mean, I sometimes uh, use the phrase uh, cultural Manichaeanism. Yeah. Uh, you know, Manichae- Manichaeans was ancient religion, and they said there's these two principles, good and evil, at war in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes people want to divide the world up that way. It's like you say, it's like either the West has got to be all good, and mm-hmm. then everybody else has got to be all bad, or, you know, oh, China's perfect, and, you know, the West is all evil. I, I don't go for those things. And, and likewise, if you say, oh, well, in the West, we're concerned with truth, and in China, they're concerned with the right way to live. Plato says that the reason he got interested in philosophy was uh, po- politics was so corrupt in Athens, uh, they even executed Socrates, who was the best person mm-hmm. he ever knew, and he realized we're not going to have good lives and justice until either philosophers become rulers or rulers become philosophers. Meanwhile, you know, Confucius says things like it's a sign of decay in society that when people are copying a book, mm-hmm. if they don't know the character, they'll just make something up. And he says in the good old days, if you didn't know what the character was, you left a blank. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and of course, Confucius really cares about things like, well, what did the sages actually say? Um, what was the truth about what they did? Uh, so I think in both cultures, in every culture I, I know of, People are concerned about what's the reality, but they also are concerned about, well, what knowing the reality, how does that teach us how to live? Yeah, but I mean, I just agree with that. He, he wouldn't say for one minute that it's an either-or, but he thinks there is a difference in, in emphasis. What's the, in the foreground and the background? Now, you might say in ancient Greece, actually, the, the, the way seeking was more, but in, in, the way Western philosophy has gone, he would say, has, has moved away from, from that. I think the, the, in the quote-unquote Western philosophy, or when we are accustomed to, to think about philosophy or the theory and the philosophizing and practice in a linear way. We first trying to find the truth and then I will practice it. But I don't think that is actually what is happening. I think we do practice philosophy. Students ask me, are you, are you a Buddhist? And the, the, when they ask me that question, because I'm a Buddhist scholar, is to think about the religious practice. And they, you might not think that we do not practice philosophy, but I think we do. There are reasons why I'm a Buddhist scholar instead of a Hegel scholar. Mm. There are reasons why you are sitting here instead of going wherever else you could spend an hour. In the, in the. So in other words, the thinking and acting are not two separate things. When we think and when we theorize, when we think about certain issues, the way we think about that issue itself is our practice. And we make this distinction as if like in Western philosophy, there is a theory, 
searching for truth, and then practical part is ethics. And then within ethics, there is ethical theory. And then later, you go out and practice. And I don't think this is what philosophy does. Actually, through philosophy, we think about various issues in our life. And by doing that action, we are practicing it in some way that influences us, the way we think about others, the way we think about issues in our, our life, and the way we make decisions. That is a practice that I think about. Right? So when students kind of read Buddhism or Confucianism, students say, well, this is not a philosophy, this is a way of life. And what is a way of life? Mm-hmm. And there is a very well-known French uh, scholar who is specialized in uh, Greek philosophy, and he has a very famous book called Philosophy as a Way of Life. Mm-hmm. Right? So we, we are interested in these kind of issues that philosophy is talking about because we'd like to have a good life. And what is a good life? Well, there are a thousand different answers, but at least we try to find it. That action itself is practice, I think. I just wanted to pick up one thing, because Zen Buddhism is one of your areas of focus. And isn't it correct to say that within Zen Buddhism, there is just a lot less concern with, you know, what belief, as it were, that what you ought to believe isn't as important as in the sense of how you ought to live. And in that sense, it's more about way than, well, truth, truth as, let's say, propositions mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. true and false. Is, is that true? And, and, and if so, could you explain a bit about what that means? Well, I think that's the Brian gave an example that Confucius gave different answers to different students. And that is exactly what Jan Buddhism does. Jan Buddhism definition says we do not use language. Well, Jan Buddhist Jan masters, they were one of the most productive writers in history of Buddhism. So what Jan Buddhism trying to say kind of downplay theories and language and kind of overplay this meditation is really to diagonize the current situation. Jan Brin thought that we just keep thinking things and as we behave as if we know these things, but actually you do not. right? So that is the idea of a practice. But Jan practice is not totally separate from the ideas. So when Jan Buddhism says we do not use language, what Jan Buddhism really meant was not that, don't say anything, but really think about the influence of language in your thinking. By using the same language, same kind of common expressions, you constantly move circling around and around and around within your mind. What Jan Buddhism asks you to do is jump away, go beyond your kind of common sense logic and try to see things from different, uh, differently. In order to do that, just reading books, just a kind of thinking about theory is not sufficient because when you read books, we interpret it from our own perspective and we kind of circling around and around and around. So Jan Buddhism wants to, I use a test, my student, shock therapy, right? You need something radical in order to go beyond your common sense circular logic and then you find a new logic. And then you go beyond that again. So this constant movement, that's what Jan Buddhism emphasizes. But Jan Buddhism does not mean that you shouldn't read books or you shouldn't mm-hmm. think about Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, could, could I, could I add, add to yeah, that? I think, sure, yeah. uh, I, I think you might agree that the, I mean, in the Buddhist tradition, we find some of the most sophisticated logical argumentation in any philosophical tradition. But part of the, the reason they think it's justified is you may have a theoretical belief that is getting in the way of enlightenment. So, for example, suppose you think it's clear that I am an independent person and I owe nothing to anybody else and I'm not dependent for my existence on anybody else. A Buddhist would say, 
If you're going to hold on to that belief, that's going to prevent you from getting enlightenment. We may need to argue with you philosophically to talk you out of that belief so that you are now prepared for the enlightenment experience. It's not that a theoretical belief will give you enlightenment, but a theoretical belief may be blocking your achievement of enlightenment, so we have to argue with you philosophically to get you out of it. I mean, but some of this, what you're talking about here, and you talk about enlightenment, limits of language, you know, a lot of people will start thinking, mm, this is all sounding basically a bit sort of mystical, vague, etc. But isn't there more of a kind of a, a, a way of understanding that kind of belief that language doesn't take us the whole way, which is not about mysticism? How do you give us a non-mystical account of why we should um, think that ultimate truth is in a sense beyond language? Well, I, I don't think mystical should be a dirty word for us. Okay. I mean, every major uh, spiritual tradition and so many great philosophers, including Plato, Heidegger, Wittgenstein, have mystical aspects to their thought. At one level, you can think of mysticism as just the view that there's a certain kind of truth that's very important to human life that cannot be adequately expressed in words. Now, to pick a trivial example, there are a lot of truths we know that can't be expressed in words, practically speaking, like how to ride a bike. I mean, a physicist can give you a precise description in physics of why it's possible to ride a bike, but even the physicist, when she gets on the bicycle, isn't using that description to ride the bicycle. She just knows how to do it or how to swim. Again, there's physics behind that, but it's not the physics that helps you swim. You just know how to do it. So what if part of life is understanding things that can't be fully expressed in words? That doesn't have to be a, a ridiculous thing to believe. In fact, it seems kind of plausible when we realize that there are many people, uh, even a serial killer can recite ethical claims to you and tell you, well, here's what the Ten Commandments say, or you know, here's what you're supposed to believe ethically, but their ability to repeat these theoretical claims about ethics doesn't make them an ethical person. So it seems like there is, even in that case, something that goes beyond the words that's real ethical knowledge. Yeah. Right, so I think we have certain kind of ungrounded ungrounded assumption about language that I understand what you say. You speak English, so I understand. But if you really think about how communication takes place, our communication takes place in a very kind of a small shared portion of communication. And the, the rest part, there is ambiguity. And I, I sometimes give, make students to do this, okay? Define love. Define chair. Even love is a somewhat abstract concept. If I ask students to define love, they kind of hesitate. Then define chair. Even something concrete like this, we know the vocabulary, but we cannot 100% understand the things. But that does not mean that I cannot communicate with you in a reasonably acceptable kind of level, at, the, at that level. But then there always exists ambiguity in our conversation, right? Now, ambiguity is fine. And the kind of partial understanding is fine. But I think if there, uh, the problem occurs when we believe this partial understanding is complete understanding and believe that this partial truth I have is the truth that everybody should know, then we move toward totalitarian vision. So I think that we can kind of move from very small kind of exercise, define love. Oh, I think I know what love is, but then 
So from there, by acknowledging there is always ambiguity in our communication, in our understanding other people, I think we can develop what Buddhism calls compassion, trying to understand other people, even though the person think differently from my perspective, right? Yeah, yeah, these are interesting points because you know, I'm sort of trained in, in Western philosophy and like yeah, the, the defining your terms is the, the basis of it and get clear on your terms. And there are so many things that we discussed over the years, I've just thought but the, the, the fundamental question is wrong, right? You know, this just isn't how language works. And you, you end up playing just like games with language if you get too, too, too obsessed by that. At the same time, Confucius, this rectification of names, yeah, 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 yeah. Is, is a big idea in Confucian thought. Mm-hmm. So he actually says, as I understand it, in the analytics, it's just this one line. He says something like, "If I could just, if I could, if I could just do one thing, it would be to get people to use words correctly," which is very interesting. Then it spawned a whole literature. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any kind of consensus about what the essence of this doctrine is? Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because yeah, there's this famous line in the analytics where Confucius says he's asked, "Well, what would you do if you were put in charge of this state, he says, well, I'd certainly start with the rectification of terms, rectification mm-hmm. of names. And there's been a lot of debate about what it means. Ironically, when uh, Western-trained scholars encountered this passage, they thought that what it meant was, oh, you're supposed to find out what the definition of these names yeah. are, and then based on that, you'll know how to use them correctly. And that sounds right if you're raised in the Western philosophical Mm -hmm. tradition, which goes back to Socrates, who went around asking people, define for me friendship, define for me courage. And then later in the Western tradition, that became the paradigm of how you do philosophies. You talk about the definitions of terms. What people forget is that Socrates almost always ended up confused about what the term meant, and he admitted, he said, isn't this funny, at the end of this dialogue, we still don't know what friendship is. We still don't know what piety is. We still don't know what courage is. And in a a letter attributed to Plato, Plato says, my philosophy has never been written down anywhere, and you shouldn't think it's ever been written down anywhere, which suggests that at some level Plato was a mystic too. Uh, And then more recently, philosophers in the West started to realize, you know, we use terms all the time without being able to define them. Maybe we don't need definitions in order to use a term properly. Maybe we just need paradigms or examples of what these things are, and then we know how to proceed from there. So it's possible that's how Confucius thought, too, and why he doesn't usually give definitions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He'll say things like, well, so-and-so is famous for his filial piety, or so-and-so is famous for his benevolence, or so-and-so is famous for his education, and from the example, you know how to proceed. So ironically, Confucius was in a lot of ways 2,500 years ahead <laughs> of Western philosophy of language, which kind of got detoured by thinking you need definitions for everything. Yeah, yeah, that's quite interesting. When we sort of see certain well-known politicians at the moment misusing language, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> you don't need to have a precise definition to see why it's being misused, right? right? right. You could just, the, the abuse is all there. This might be a dangerous question because postmodernism is a word which uh, often leaves people kind of confused, right? Mm-hmm. So post Modernism is also a term which is used quite loosely, as I understand it, philosophically at least. It's mm-hmm. a lot to do with uh, denial of grand unifying narratives, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, right. you think about Buddhism mm-hmm. and postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Is it possible for you to say something about how Buddhism illuminates postmodernism or vice versa? 
briefly, or is that a yeah. daft thing to ask you to do? Sure, sure, I will try. <laughs> uh, that's the thing, that one of the major issues I've been working on for many, many, many years throughout my scholarship. So, um, as you know, that the Buddhism, the basic idea is that nothing has its own independent and permanent essence, whether it's a being, human being, or the chair. So everything exists as a kind of a, uh, the in relation with others. So this idea of relational or interdependence in Buddhism kind of is a basic of its worldview and its understanding of a human being. And I connect this idea with the postmodern challenge to the Cartesian understanding or modern understanding of a human being and the world. The modernity uh, began with the idea that the human being is a rational being, is an individual who has this capacity to rationally think, so rationally kind of make a decision. This idea of independent being in the modern period actually promised liberation of all people, liberation of human beings, because they thought that if we rationally think, then we can get rid of all the kind of superstitions and we can liberate people. However, this idea, the idea that human being or any being has certain kind of essence evolved into a totally different direction. You see that the end result of this modernist idea is imperialism and colonialism. Because when you think that the rationality is essence of human being, we also thought that there are some people who have this rational capacity, and there are other group of people who do not. So we developed a center, and then the center could be regional West, center could be gendered, gendered male. So this idea also kind of separates center and margin. Postmodernism challenged this idea of individual essence as a kind of core of human existence and trying to show that actually our existence is relational. So one of the uh, well-known French thinker Jean-François Lyotard in his uh, book on uh, postmodern condition proposed this idea that the grand narrative and the small narrative, the modernity is based on grand narrative. We talk about big issues, freedom, liberation. Sounds good, but then if we really think about how do we achieve freedom or liberation, then each individual practices it differently. Modernity didn't go that far. And postmodernism, trying to see how individual practice this, which Jean-François Lyotard called small narrative. Each individual is the center of the world, which does not make one individual as the center of the world, as totalitarian world. So um, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, another French thinker, said that center is nowhere and the center is everywhere. So postmodernism emphasizes challenges this kind of a rationality-centered worldview and the human-centered worldview because of that now we see what, what we did with the environment and uh, the ecology, right? Postmodernism challenged that and then trying to kind of emphasize the relationality and individual that they are all center. And I connected this with the Buddhist idea of interrelational identity. And I think there are a lot of social political issues we can kind of combine this too, in addition to as an individual, how I should understand myself 
and how I should understand other people and my society and the world. That's, that's, it's very interesting. A Buddhism sort of like its conception of the self was a, a ahead of the game. I think most uh, modern uh, neuroscientists and psychologists basically agree with the Buddhist right, conception yeah, of the self, exactly. and it's also ahead with postmodernism. But I'm wondering actually whether, in a way, it would be better if those ideas that came to us through postmodernism had come to us in the Buddhist form. Because in, in postmodernism, I'm not blaming, say, Leotard, <coughs> who was actually wrote very clearly, mm-hmm. it became associated with just a kind of a, a scepticism, uh, an irony, mm-hmm. and people just thought it was about, you know, not taking truth seriously. Mm-hmm. Whereas within Buddhism, these ideas are part of a, a serious ethical kind of orientation to mm-hmm, the world, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. are looking for a kind of truth, aren't you? But you're not looking for the truth with a capital T, mm-hmm, which, mm-hmm, is, which mm-hmm. is final. Yeah. I, I think that those people who really criticize postmodernism always come to that idea that post, in postmodernism there is no one truth, everybody can go anywhere. But actually, Postmodernism is the kind of philosophy which eventually helped kind of gender discourse, the women's issues, and the marginal groups to speak out themselves, and society accept, begin to slowly accept that. So the, one of the reasons why I try to combine Buddhism and postmodernism is because Buddhism traditionally is more focusing on individual's practice. So historically, Buddhism is weak in social political philosophy. And postmodernism uses a similar idea of individual identity, but very much kind of focusing on social political issues. So if we combine these two together, I thought that we can kind of full-scale kind of philosophy, the philosophy which emphasizes individual's practice and individual salvation and the social political dimensions. Thank you for coming this evening. Uh, I, I turned out to make... I, I'm very good, at least on one thing. I invited two... Wonderful people. Uh, so thank you to Jim Park and Brian Randall. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about me and sign up for my free weekly-ish newsletter at julianbergini.com, where you'll also find links to hundreds of my articles, numerous videos and podcasts, and my books. So until next time, if nothing prevents... Goodbye.